All right, well, we'll be in Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 31. We're closing out our study in the book of Acts. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. But all good things must come to an end. So as you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 28, we'll start reading in verse 17. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. After three days... He called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my, na my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've not received we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray. Father, it's an exciting thing, at least in my eyes, when we come to the end of the book of the Bible as we study it together, because I can't help but think of everything you've been teaching us as we've gone through this study. As we've opened up our hearts to hear from you, will you help us finish strong to look at the end of this book and to ask anew, Lord, what, what do you want to teach us today? How do you want to conform us to the image of Christ today? What would you have for us in this text? And I know that there's, there are going to be things here that speak to us all as a church, and there are going to be things here that you pinpoint in our hearts as individuals because you love us. You desire to speak to us. So give us ears to hear hearts to believe, and minds that can comprehend. Please do this by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> I really like ends of books. Um, you know, if it's an epistle, I, I think one reason I like coming to the end of an epistle is because so often it just feels so easy to write it off. People are like, oh, okay, here are all these items that this writer just wants this person to bring him, or here's the final greetings and things. And I think there's hidden gems here that we can, we can actually pull out and apply. 
And so even though Acts is not an epistle, I think, I think we can fall into the same thing. All the exciting stuff has already happened in Acts. And now we're getting to the end. And as we're looking at what happens, how, how this book ends, it can feel a little anticlimactic. Because you have all of these great acts of God, all of these promises coming forth, and then finally Paul makes it to Rome, which has been what we've been seeking and, and what, what these past few chapters have been leading up to all this time. And now he gets to Rome, he preaches the gospel, and some believe, some don't believe. And they walk away. And then he lives there for two years. And then the book ends. And you're like, well, okay. Oh, all right. What, what do I do with that? How do I make sense of that? And I think we could, we could read this and think, you know, I, I really wanted a clearer vindication of Paul, right? Or, or you might read it and you think, I really, really want just the Jews to repent and believe here and there to be this wide door open for all the Jews to come in through the door of Jesus Christ. And, or maybe you read this and you think, I really wanted to, to hear about Paul standing before Caesar, proclaiming the gospel, see Caesar come to faith and the Gentile world come to faith through that means, right? And we can have these desires or maybe these expectations, seeing God's great acts happening all through the book of Acts, and we can develop these ideas of where we think the story is going and then be disappointed. We're going to do something a little bit different today as we go through this text. You know, usually I bring out points that I want to make. Today I have questions. I just have questions that I want us to ask and to see if these answers can come up for us from the text. And the reason I have these questions, and you can see that the sermon title is a question, what did you expect? Because I want us to think through our expectations and our desires and how we could read something in the Bible and find it disappointing and say, what does that actually reveal about me if I find this disappointing? Because as we see the end of this book, we think about what's been happening in Acts so far, it makes perfect sense. So Zach read earlier from Acts chapter 1, 6 through 9. And if you recall, way back when we studied that passage in Acts 1, this is right before Jesus ascends into heaven. And the disciples ask him a question, right? Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And we noted when we studied that passage that Jesus does not say, oh, you completely missed it. This isn't about a kingdom. Instead, he says, that's not for you to worry about. That, that's, that's up to the Father. That's going to happen, but that's happening in his time, and that's something you don't need to be concerned about. Here's what you need to be concerned about being my witnesses. That's your realm. This is outside of your realm. The kingdom, in other words then, right? It is coming. That is God's promise. But what the disciples and what the apostles were to look for was how they would be used as witnesses. Specifically, right? What does Jesus say? They're called to be witnesses all over Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And so here's how we need to read this, the end of Acts. I don't know why Luke chose to end it here. I don't know why the Holy Spirit led him to end it here. But here's at least something that I can say we gather from it. 
when we, Christians, Gentile Christians who live in Utah on the North American continent, when we read this and we, we see that the book of Acts is not really about the Acts of the Apostles, even though it's called the Acts of the Apostles, it's not really about their Acts. It's about the continuing work of Jesus that takes place through his people and the fulfillment of this promise. You will, be, you will be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, this is gonna get outside the city, not only in Judea, this is gonna get out of your region, not only in Samaria, this is gonna get way out of your region and go to a different kind of people, this is gonna to go to the whole world. Right, and we can, we can pause and just let that sink in for a moment and consider the fact that, yeah, here we are on the other side of the world, we've heard this gospel, we believe it. When Paul makes it to Rome, this becomes the perfect place to end this account to show that Jesus is faithful to fulfill his promises and to show that he is still active in this world because Rome at this time is considered to be the hub of the world. This is access to the rest of the world. So when Paul makes it to Rome, it's as if we can say, and the rest is history. Look where we are now. Look what God has done. He's fulfilled his promise to do this, and we can look around and see, and he's continued to do it until this day. So Paul's presence and activity in Rome, right? The fact that he's sharing the gospel and what it says even in the last verse, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That activity should remind us of Jesus' present and ongoing activity, especially of the sure word of his promise. Jesus, right, we could say this, Jesus will bring his kingdom and our trust in him to do so is strengthened by seeing his continuing activity in this fallen world. If you hit the next slide, this is what I want us to look at. So through the powerful activity of Jesus to bring about what he calls his church to do, be witnesses, right? calls us to be witnesses. He calls his disciples to be witnesses. And then he empowers them and he paves the way for them to do that. He's the foundation, but he's also the support of how that actually happens. So through the powerful activity of Jesus to bring about what he calls his church to do, our hope in the coming kingdom is strengthened. So, let's ask ourselves a few questions. First, for what do you hope? For what do you hope? So just to pay, the reason I'm asking this question, right? It's because we have seen in the book of Acts Jesus' powerful activity to bring about what he's told his church to do. And that is showing us then, right? His kingdom is coming. He is bringing this about. We're not supposed to worry about when it comes. We're supposed to worry, be worried about being witnesses. And so our Faith is built that he is going to bring his kingdom because he is actually enabling us to do what he has called us to do. So then, I think that raises this question for us. What is our hope? Because we're future-driven creatures. You can, we're, we're always making decisions today based on what we think tomorrow is going to bring. And, and that makes a big difference for us, what we think tomorrow is going to bring. Where we differ sometimes as people, 
It's how far into the future are we actually looking, right? So you, you can have two people that are on a diet. One is thinking, this is what this diet is gonna do for me in six months. The other person might be thinking, I really want this, I really want to start seeing effects of this diet tomorrow. So then the person, the latter person, right, who's thinking about tomorrow, gets up and sees, I weigh the exact same thing and I feel the exact same way. That's discouragement. Because they're not looking very far into the future. The other person who's looking six months in the future gets up that next day, they weigh the exact same thing, they feel the exact same way, but they say, you know what? I'm looking a little bit further now. When we think about being future-driven creatures, it's really important that we consider how far in the future we are looking when it comes to our hope and what we're hoping in. If our hope really is everything that Jesus has brought about and the, the fact that he guarantees for us entrance into the kingdom of God, if that's where our hope is, that's a pretty long-out hope, right? We're thinking way in the future. In fact, we're thinking we don't know when in the future, just that we know it will be in the future. And I bring this up because, let's look at Paul in this passage, right? So we begin, right, he's, he's just gone through this terrible sea voyage where he's shipwrecked, they think they're going to die, he's delivered onto Malta, they're there for three months, they get on a ship and they finally make it to Rome, and then after he makes it to Rome, three days later, he calls all of the Jewish leaders from the synagogues in Rome together, because he can't go to them now, remember he's imprisoned, so he can't keep up his usual custom of going to the synagogues and preaching the gospel to the Jews first. So he calls the Jews to him to speak to them. And we see in these verses, starting in verse 17, right? Uh, if you look at 17 through 22, Paul here is explaining why he's in Rome. He explains that he's innocent in regard to the charges against him, uh, that he really is, he really is keeping with Judaism, and that he would like to explain himself further. Right? This, this is what he's saying to the religious leaders. And we see in verse 22 that these Jewish leaders desire to hear him further. Specifically, they really want to know, what do you believe? Because we're hearing about Christianity. It's already made it to Rome. They don't like what's there. They, they hear that this is, this is spoken against everywhere else in the world. So we've not heard anything bad about you, though. So yeah, go ahead and explain. We, we want to hear what you have to think about this because we're giving him respect as a teacher. right? And then verse 23, we see that after they appointed a day to meet together, this original gathering and even more people come, and from morning till evening, right, he then expounds what he believes to them. I just cannot imagine Paul being in a completely rested state after this long journey. He gives it three days, and he wants to speak to them about these things. And he talks about these two things specifically if you look at verse 23, right? The kingdom of God in Jesus. He tries to persuade them and convince them about their hope in the kingdom of God and Jesus. And these two things, these, these two major ideas go together for Paul. The reason he expounds on the kingdom and on Jesus is because what he said in verse 20, right? If you look back at verse 20. In verse 20, he says the reason that he's in trial and in chains in the first place is because of the hope of Israel. What does that mean? Hope of Israel. You recall, this is not the first time he's mentioned the hope of Israel now. Well, let's just go back to chapter 23 when he's first arrested and he's talking about his imprisonment here, right? Because he uses this phrase several times. So 23, chapter 23, verse 6, this is when he's before the Jewish council. 
He says, it says here, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Or what he says in chapter 24, verse 15, when he's before Felix, right? He says, Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, speaking of the Jewish leaders, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Or when he's before Festus and King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 6, he says this, Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. So if we put all this together, here's what we're saying. Paul talks about that there's this distinction, right? At one point, he acts like there's a distinction. There's hope and the resurrection when he's talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But then at other times, he seems to equate, my hope is the resurrection. So these two things, they go together for Paul. He, he, he seems to equate them at times, but see them as a little bit different. And so as we put all this together, Here's what I want us to see. And I think this is what he means. The kingdom of God, God's perfect reign over God's people in God's place, his kingdom is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. The hope of the resurrection becomes the gateway to this eternal hope of the kingdom. Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the promise of our resurrection by uniting to him in faith is the doorway to entering into this grand promise that God has laid out all through the Old Testament that he is making a place and a people for himself. And the way that we enter in to that grand promise of the kingdom is through hope in Jesus who is guaranteed it by his resurrection from the dead. This is why Paul is equating this to in verse 23, right? When he's, he's trying to convince them. He's laying out, hey, you have this hope of the kingdom of God. That's all throughout the Old Testament. That'd be very easy to pick up the, uh, the books of Moses and the prophets, which he does, and he's pointing out, look, I've got this hope too, that God's perfect reign is coming on earth, that sin will be no more, that death will be conquered. That is all coming. I believe that. Do you know how we get that? Jesus. That's the doorway into the kingdom of God. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees the hope of resurrection into God's perfect kingdom. So what kind of hope is this? If we're asking ourselves this question, what am I hoping for? This is an eternal and unshakable hope held for the believer by the power of Christ. That's what's laid out before us. Because what can actually take away this hope? Who holds it for us? It is Jesus that guarantees it. It is Jesus that holds it. When you and I end up feeling discouraged, I would wager most of the time, if it's an unhealthy discouragement, right? It's okay to be sad. I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to be sad. We can, we can be discouraged, right? But the kind of unhealthy, all-consuming discouragement and hopelessness that can oftentimes overtake us happens, I think, because we start looking here and now and we stop looking ahead to what God has guaranteed us in Jesus. 
and that drives us low. Why is Paul able to jump right into ministry as soon as he arrives in Rome? Why is he able to endure such terrible injustice and such terrible hardship? I mean, just go read 2 Corinthians 11 when he lists out all of the hardship that he's endured. We read them, we think, that sounds like a terrible life. I don't want that life. Why was Paul okay with that life? Because he knew it led to something else. His hope wasn't based in this life. It was based on something beyond that, something greater than that. That's where he always looked. That's how he fought discouragement. That's the Christian life. This is why Paul, when he's in jail, right, here and now, this is, this is where most people think that he wrote his letter to the Philippians, right? And he writes to the Philippians, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And we read that, you know, if we've been reading the Bible for a while, we've been following Jesus for a while, we, we nod our heads, yep, that's right. But just stop and think about that for a moment. We're saying, okay, dying right here and now. I mean, could you write that today? Could you write down, pull out your journal and say, you know what, if I continue living, I'm really glad that I get to keep serving Christ. If I die today, yes, because death has been made a pathway to the presence of Christ. Through his conquering of death, suddenly now death is no longer an enemy that debilitates us, but it becomes a subservient uh, pathway to lead us to greater communion with Christ, from which we will not be held forever. Death is not the, death is not the goal, right? Resurrection is the goal. Paul says, yeah, death, death is only going to lead me to be with Christ a little bit longer, and then I'm going to be resurrected. What's wrong with that? Could we write that today? And I think when we, if, we, if we're honest, right, we say, that would be hard to write. It's because we lack this kind of hope a hope in the eternal, a hope that is lasting. So I'll just add one more question to this question. That we, as we ponder this week, where is my hope? You can just ask yourself this additional question. Do you find yourself in your daily living, as you wake up in the morning, you're thinking about the things you have to do, do you find yourself dwelling on and living for a temporary hope? Pursuing things that, like, that's temporary. That's not going to last. Devoting all your attention and your energy and your thoughts and your heart devotion and your worship even to something that is just going to go away. Or do you find yourself turning, pleading with the Lord, help me be focused on this eternal hope that I have in you. Help me to rest there so that as the hardships come to me, they're not debilitating hardships. They're, I can knock them off and say, compared to the eternal weight of glory coming, this is nothing. Second question. So through the powerful activity of Jesus to bring about what he calls his church to do, our hope in the coming kingdom is strengthened. So we ask ourselves, on what grounds do you hope? On what grounds do you hope? So we all have a hope. What are the grounds of that hope? Have you ever noticed that um, we're, we're creatures that just try to make sense of things? So we're future-oriented creatures, but we're also creatures that just try to make sense of things. <clears throat> the other day, Haley and I were talking about a woman that had to go to the hospital, and it was very serious, and Julia, um, we didn't know, was listening to our conversation. She came up and she started to ask questions. And, uh, you know, saying, well, 
what happened to her? Well, she got really sick. She had to go to the hospital. You know, she was so sick that she couldn't really do anything on her own. So Julia asks, <laughs> Julia asks, how'd she get to the hospital? Oh, like, well, I guess somebody drove her, right? Well, if she couldn't really do that much, I mean, she fastened her seatbelt, how'd she sit in the car? Right? She, she, humorous, right? Because she's asking all these follow-up questions, but what she's trying to do is she's trying to gather this information to make sense of what she has just heard. We all do this. So we, we get new information, but we have a reality that we're living in, just our understanding of the world, and we take that new information and we, think, we try and figure out how do we synthesize this? How do, we, how do we put this together? How do we make one consistent picture? And here's a newsflash, if you don't already know this, we're creatures that want to do this, but we're also creatures that are really bad at doing this. We do a very poor job of being consistent. Most of the time, we end up accepting information that simply fits well with what we already have and what we already believe. Whatever explanation is gonna fit best into what we've already accepted, that's typically what we run with. It's very hard for us to push against what we've already accepted and to change. Do you see what's happening here in verse 23? Why, the whole reason I'm talking about this. In verse 23 and following, Paul is now speaking to these Jewish leaders who have not seen the risen Christ. Paul has seen the risen Christ. Paul has been commissioned by the risen Christ. And he takes the law of Moses and the prophets, and he's trying to tell them, okay, here's something you've accepted. Here's how Christ makes sense in all that. If you look at verse 23, this is exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to, show, trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. He's saying, here's what you've accepted, and here's something new. Here's how it all makes sense. Here's how Jesus is actually the key to understanding all of that. This is how you can put it all together. And a question that I have for us, right, as believers, but then also as we share the good news of the kingdom of God to unbelievers, something that we should always be asking ourselves, and something that we should be asking people, the way that Paul is asking these religious leaders, right, is, can you put it all together? Can you come up with a consistent understanding of, of this man who is risen from the dead? The fact that Jesus lived a perfect life. Right? This, is, this is, I guess some people can contest what perfect means, but the fact that Jesus lived at least a good life, that's not contested by people. The fact that Jesus, that we have these documents that say Jesus said he was going to die. Then he died. And not only did he say he was going to die, but he also said, I'm going to rise again. And then he rose again. Do we have an understanding of this world that can make sense of that? Or do we say, that's just impossible? Does the way we fit the world together make Jesus' resurrection absolutely unlikely? And if so, we should ask this follow-up question, why? Why? Why does that seem so incredibly unlikely to you and impossible to you? Can you actually make sense then of this movement that started in Jerusalem, spread to Judea, then to Samaria, and is now reached all the way to Utah and beyond? Can you make sense of that? 
The preaching of the gospel today has the same result that it did in Paul's day too. That can actually be a little comfort, I think. If you look at verse 24, right? Here's what it says. After he's from morning till evening expounded his faith to them, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. It's the same thing today. Some believe, some disbelieve, and they walk away. And the gospel burns and it soothes, right? It burns us and it soothes us. And this is what causes people to walk away. The gospel tears and it heals. The gospel breaks and it builds. The gospel of the kingdom cuts at us in ways that we don't like. Because here's the beginning message of the gospel of the kingdom. You are outside. You do not belong. You are a rebel who has taken his life into his own hands and turned away from God, not only once, but with every fiber of your being. More than you can actually understand it right now, you have rebelled against God. And you can't do anything about it. There is no way you can make this up to God. There is no way you can undo treason. You are helpless. That's not a message that people like to hear. That's not a message that I like to hear. That I'm told that there's something I cannot do. That I have committed a wrong so heinous and so outside of my ability to, to heal it and bring restoration that I am actually helpless. Nobody likes to be told that they're helpless and outside. But that's exactly what the gospel of the kingdom does. It tears down, but it does so only to build back up because the good news of the gospel of the kingdom is that the king of this kingdom has borne our penalty and that he died for us, that he offers us peace. And this isn't just an empty piece of saying, you know what, I'm going to overlook things. This is a substantial piece where he took our punishment. This is a substantial piece because he gave his body for this piece. He gave his life for this piece, and now he holds it out to us, his very life and body. That's why the gospel heals. Because this bad news that's spoken to us, that yeah, we really want to be autonomous beings. We really want to have control of all these things. And it says to us, you don't. You really don't. You don't understand yet how bad you've been and how horribly you've hurt yourself and you've hurt this world that God has made good. But the good news is, Jesus promises to undo all that. And he begins undoing that in your very heart. Believers and unbelievers wrestle with scripture, right? We wrestle on how to fit this all together. Do you see, if you look at this passage, right? They leave disagreeing among themselves, it says in verse 25. They all depart after Paul quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. This was Isaiah's commissioning in the book of Isaiah, where God was telling him, here's what you're going to go do as a prophet. He has to go to a people who he knows would ultimately not listen to him or heed the words he spoke. And God says, the reason Judah is not going to listen to you, Isaiah, and, and Paul is able to place this now on the religious leaders who are rejecting him, is because their ears have become dull, their eyes were closed, and their hearts were fat and immovable. 
And what Paul, I think, means by applying, to the, applying this passage to the present Jewish religious leaders before him is he's saying, your stubbornness to listen to God is only increasing your guilt. To refuse to truly hear the word is to risk reaching a point where it will never be heard. That's a warning for believers and unbelievers alike as we read the scriptures, and we try to make sense of this world, as we try to take the proclamation of God and our human experience and see how does this fit together? This is a warning for us, for believers and unbelievers, that we so often want the kingdom of God to conform to our desires and what we think is good. Instead of coming to the scripture and saying, actually, how can I be conformed around what you say is good? We so desire to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and to say, I know I can trust myself. Instead, what the world calls, word calls us to do is to go to the Lord and say, I actually, from my experience, know I should really doubt myself. And I should instead trust your word about things. And particularly for us believers, I just want to give this additional warning on this. We can be very tempted not to listen to the word that is spoken to us by our brothers and sisters. Paul calls the Jewish leaders here his brothers, his kinsmen, and he loves them. He speaks hard words to them. I think often we can want to reject the words spoken to us through each other because we don't want to submit to the word and we use, I don't want to listen to that person as an excuse to not listening to the word. Does that make sense? We need to be very careful of that. When you think about what you love in this world and the hope that you expect to come out of this world, does it make sense of the world around you? So our last question. Very briefly, how do you live in hope? How do you live in hope? So we see how this book ends, right? In 30 and 31. We're told that Paul is now in Rome for two years. He welcomes anybody that comes to him. The gospel is going to the Gentiles but that doesn't mean the door is closed on the Jews. The gospel is for every people group and for every pedigree. Paul welcomes all because faith in Jesus restores the kingdom of God to all. As we see these closing verses, right, what I want us to take from this is how do we live an ordinary life with this extraordinary hope of the kingdom? How do we live in our ordinary lives with this extraordinary hope. And it looks so normal and tame. Paul's a prisoner. He's wrongly imprisoned. He ends up paying his own expenses while he's imprisoned, awaiting for his trial. He's bound, but he doesn't act like the gospel message, which has changed his life and which he lives for, is bound. He welcomes all who come. He invites people to come. He proclaims without hindrance 
the gospel of the kingdom and Jesus to whoever will hear. His circumstances, his hardships, his major inconveniences, they don't hold Paul back from continuing to work for and to hope in and to proclaim the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. So how is your hope, right? How is your hope in the reality that you belong to the kingdom of God now and that you will be raised to a new life to dwell on the new heavens and earth with Jesus? How does that hope present itself in your life now? Right? We could quote First Peter here and just say, do people come up to you and say, will you tell me about the hope that you have? Because I see where you are in life. Boy, I see the hardships that you have going on in your life. How, how is it that you keep going? What is it about you that makes you different? Or if somebody sees you in the midst of a season of struggling for joy, for contentment, and they might even come to you and ask you a question about that, you can say, here's what true and lasting contentment is. Here's what true joy is. I think as we look at these last two verses and we think about this extraordinary hope in an ordinary way, I just want to point out four quick things that this shows us that we should try and walk in every day to remind ourselves this this is how we are given hope. Before I do that, though, let me just emphasize this. With this question, how do I live in hope? <clears throat> I imagine that the first reaction of all of us is not very well. And I don't ask this question to lay on you this burden of condemnation. I ask the question so that our eyes will actually be redirected to say, the hope we have is great and I can actually live in that. I, sh I ask the question because I want us to be able to say and see very clearly, the hope we have in Christ is so great, I can turn away from this thing and I can turn to that instead. I have a power offered to me by God through hope that I have not been thinking about. So this question, far from leading us to condemn ourselves, right? That's not where I want us to be. I want us actually to hear from this question instead. I, I, there is a hope I can turn to. There is some place I can live. There is something I can call out to and remember on a daily basis in the ordinary struggles of life. And as we do that, I think these things will come up for us, right? It is the hope of the kingdom that we end up living in these ways, right? We remain, a, we were able to, to be ready and confident to share with people about how Jesus is still working today. Because we can tell him about what he's doing in our own lives. Here's how I see Jesus working today. Right, when we think about Jesus' commission to be witnesses, we can get bogged down in thinking that we have to become great theologians to be able to expound all of Scripture like Paul. Right? I don't think we necessarily have to do that. If you want to do that, great, go ahead, do it with joy. But here's what we can do in the ordinary of the day. As people come to us, we can say, here is what Jesus has done, and here's what he's doing now. Because we have that information as we walk with Jesus. Second, it keeps our focus on God and what he is doing in this world to sum up all things in Christ. And so as we have this eternal hope before us, that's what we're hoping in, 
that's what we're looking to, then suddenly our present circumstance, that is not what dominates our life. Instead, we come to see that present circumstance as saying, oh, you know, my ultimate circumstance is this. So I imagine that the Lord, who is sovereign, is actually using my present circumstance to bring about this ultimate circumstance. This is not wasted. Our hardships, our sufferings, it's not wasted. And this allows us then, right, to keep an open door to anyone who will listen. Because the gospel itself is a message of an open door to God through Jesus. Last is hope. I think it does lead us to remember that sharing the good news of the kingdom, that even though we've rebelled against God and that there's nothing we can do to be made right with him, Jesus has done everything that is necessary for us to be made right with him. We remember that this good news of the kingdom, sharing it is the priority of our church. And I say that, I said that very specifically. I don't just want to say it's the priority of individuals. It's the priority of our church to share this good news of the kingdom. This is not a burden for any one of us to bear and to be buried in. This is a burden for all of us in the church to say we want to display the open door of the kingdom through Jesus Christ. We want to proclaim as a priority above all other priorities, people can come into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. As a church, we remember that God doesn't just call us to do something. Jesus becomes the foundation and the support of everything that he calls us to do. We get a good reminder of that as we get to come to the table now. As we